0: We're going to turn again to God's word and, and specifically into the, the gospel of Mark. Um, and as we do that, I, w- I wonder if there are certain events in history that you look back on and think, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I was there for that moment. Maybe it was a significant moment in the life of your family or, or wider than that, just in general world history. And you look back and think, wouldn't it have been just incredible to stand in that place in that time for that season? Uh, and for Christians here, I, I wonder if you read through or hear stories from God's word and think, I wish I'd been there. I I just wish I'd been, maybe not involved in the story, but just there to watch. I wish I'd been there. As you think about the splitting of the Red Sea or the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down or uh, Solomon's great temple being opened and celebrated and consecrated. Uh, Daniel emerging from the lion's den that morning or Nehemiah and Nehemiah's generation rebuilding those walls and celebrating God's faithfulness. So many stories. I wonder if you look back through the Old Testament and think, I wish I was there. And then we get to the New Testament, uh, not to mention all the prophets and writings that that, that I've skipped over. But we get to the New Testament and see Jesus walking on this planet and we see the record of things he did and said, the people he interacted with. And I wonder, are there things that you think, I wish I was there? Uh, And particularly, I wonder, are there some of the occasions where Jesus demonstrates some kind of physical, visible, miraculous demonstration of his power And you think, oh, I wish I was there to have witnessed that. Uh, The reality is, as we read through the gospel accounts, we see Jesus performing many miracles like that. Physical healings for people, uh, divine provision in in miraculous ways, defying our understanding of the laws of physics and nature. Uh, There are many ways in which Jesus worked miraculously and powerfully. And one of the purposes of those miracles, and we touched on this last week, actually, as we saw Jesus healing the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2. One of the reasons and one of the purposes of Jesus' miraculous demonstrations of power was so that we could grasp the enormity of his work in the unseen. So he was able to do miraculous things in the seen, physical, natural world. But there are certain occasions, and last week was definitely one, when he performed the miraculous physical miracle to demonstrate that he had authority to do the unseen spiritual miracle that had already taken place in forgiving the man's sins. And so we see Jesus in, at work powerfully in, in both of these worlds, this, the natural world and the spiritual world. And, of course, they're not always so distinct. Uh, very often, Jesus' physical miracles have spiritual consequences or causes Um, and vice versa. But what we see is very clearly Jesus working out in the authority that he has in both of these worlds. Uh, And of course, authority is the focus of this series that we're having in Mark's gospel. We have seen already that Jesus's authority comes from his identity, who he is. He is God's son, the Messiah. Therefore, everything he says matters. Everything he does matters because he acts and speaks as God on earth, God incarnate, the word become flesh. And so he is not just an ordinary man who could teach well, although, of course, he had authority to teach. He's not just a miracle worker who performed shows. No, because he could speak truth. And that lasting, God-given, God-ordained, God-truth, he could speak that. And so his authority comes from who he is, which therefore means he's able to teach. He's able to speak truth. And as we saw last week, he is the one who came to forgive sins. He is the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one to whom we can come to in repentance and faith and know forgiveness from our sins. Know ourselves rid of our sinful rags and clothed with his perfect righteousness. This is Jesus. He is the one who has authority. And as I said, today we're going to think about Jesus' authority in the natural world over the natural world next week we're going to think about the spiritual world and colin cooper um, who was a, a former pastor in Knock connie and um, now working for the association of baptist churches he he will come and unpack that topic with us next week uh, looking specifically at mark chapter 5 but today we're going to think about mark chapter 4 and so i'd love for you to turn there to mark chapter 4 as we see Jesus' authority over the natural world Jesus' authority over the natural world and this is actually a passage of scripture that Yule has just been singing to us about. Uh, there are going to be themes in this passage which God has laid in my heart that, that, that perfectly dovetail with how God has also led Yule and Carly this morning to lead us. So, uh, so we thank him for his grace and we pray for his help as we come to his word. But let me read uh, Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35, going down to the end of the chapter in verse 41. Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. That's the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Father, as we turn to your word, would you speak powerfully through it by your spirit? Remove distractions from our hearts and our minds, Father, so that we can hear you. And see your great truth and therefore be transformed by you to go and live faithfully as witnesses for you. In your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. This occasion here in Mark chapter 4 is definitely one of those that I mentioned at the start. It's one of those occasions that I read through scripture and say, I wish I was there. I wish I'd been in the boat. I wish I'd seen this take place and so often i think we're, we're a little bit guilty of, of sanitizing some of these stories or domesticating them a little or just reading them as dry words on a page but there's nothing dry about this story pun totally intended there, there's nothing dry here put yourself in the boat you're getting drenched by the winds and the waves and of course this is on the sea of galilee which was known for its fast and furious storms yet even the seasoned fishermen in this boat are terrified this is a bad one And they're fearing the end. As the boat is on its way down, they think they're going down with it. And of course, they assume the worst. But then it seems that they remember they're with Jesus, this man who they've spent time with. We saw in verse 35, that day when evening came, they'd spent a miraculous day hearing Jesus' teaching. If you flick back through the first three chapters of Mark, you'll see some of the incredible miracles that they, some of them, were able to witness. They knew they had spent time with this great man. But yet as they look around the boat, where is he? Sleeping on a cushion? Sleeping, Jesus? In the middle of this, how can you sleep? Can't you do something about this? Don't you care if we drown? The ESV actually renders that phrase. Don't you care that we are perishing? Active, tense, present, active. We are in the midst of perishing, Jesus. And don't you care? And as he rises from his slumber, verse 39, he got up rebuked the wind and the waves quiet be still and the wind died down and was completely calm jesus gets up speaks to nature speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey this is the man jesus who stands in the boat in the midst of the storm speaks and creation listens he is surely the one who has authority over the natural world And of course we know the power and authority of the voice of God in relation to creation, in relation to the created world. Of course we have Genesis 1 where what happened? God spoke and creation happened. His very voice brought forth creation he is, of course, the one with authority. And then we reach through, read through the Psalms. We read Psalms like Psalm 18, Psalm 19, Psalm 29, to name just a few. And then we get to Psalm 33, where we hear these words. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. And verse 9 finishes with, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. How about these words from Psalm 107, which sound remarkably familiar to the, to the account that we've just read in Psalm, in Mark chapter 4. The psalmist is demonstrating the goodness of God's unending love. And one of the examples he gives in Psalm 107 is this. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the mountains and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards, till, they, and they were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Therefore, Let them give praise to the Lord for his unfailing love, his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of his people and praise him in the council of the elders. What resulted in all of that praise? God's voice, the voice of God, which spoke over the created world because he stilled the storm to a whisper. And then, of course, we read this account in Mark chapter 4. We see God in human form, Jesus, carrying this authority too over the natural world. As I mentioned earlier, we see throughout Mark's gospel, just focusing there, we see his authority over the natural world. We see physical healings in multiple scenarios. We see him feeding the the, the 5,000, which of course was just 5,000 men. There's then the unfortunate reality that we often forget the feeding of 4,000 because for some reason we're less amazed by 4,000 than five. And so we see 5,000 in chapter 6, 4,000 in chapter 8, then he defies the laws of physics and nature by walking on the surface of the water in chapter 6. And back here in chapter 4, we see his authority displayed as he calms the storm with a word, quiet. The same word, incidentally, he spoke to the impure spirit in chapter 1. He said, be quiet, come out of the man." And so he speaks to the wind and the waves, quiet. This, This storm that was bringing... In the disciples' mind, anyway, was bringing certain destruction, and with a word, he stills it. And it's the reaction of the disciples that provides our question for today. As you know, we're looking through questions in Mark's gospel which demonstrate Christ's authority. And the question in verse 41 is this They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the wind and the waves. You can see how incredible this was for the first disciples in the boat with Jesus, even the wind and the wind. Who is this man? And by what they've just witnessed and what we now read today in God's word, it's clear Jesus has authority over the natural world. But there's two main questions that I want us to deal with for the rest of our time this morning. Firstly, and we've seen some of this actually already, how does Jesus have this authority? What gives him this authority? What right does he have over the natural world? And then secondly, that, that may be good and true, so what does that mean for us? It, and that may be good and true, that is good and true. So what does that mean for us? Well, firstly, how does Jesus have this authority over nature? Well, to answer that question, we've seen all of what I've said already from Genesis when he speaks creation into being through the Psalms and then even picking up some other scriptures from the New Testament. We see in John chapter 1, the first three verses of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made, that has been made. And so this is echoing creation in Genesis 1, isn't it? John, of course, goes on through chapter 1 to explain that the Word is Jesus. The Word made flesh is Jesus. And so by opening his gospel with this complex yet profound yet joyful statement, John is showing us great things about Jesus. Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ, as we've seen time and time again throughout this series, Jesus Christ is fully divine. He was there at the beginning of time. He was with God in the beginning. In fact, he was there before time was created because he created time. This is Jesus. This is who he is. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He was crucial in creation. And this was picked up in a verse from Colossians, which you all read for us earlier, taking us into Colossians 1:16 to 17. For in him, that's Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Jesus, and this is what gives him authority over the natural world because through him, for him, by him, he made it all. It was made for him, by him, through him, and in him all things hold together. These are incredible truths, but they demonstrate why Jesus has authority over the created world. He is so much greater than it. From him it came to be. And so, of course, as he speaks, creation listens. That's how he has authority over the natural world. And doesn't that answer the disciples' question in verse 41? They ask, who is this? This is who it is. In the boat with them on the lake in the middle of the storm is God made flesh. And he's the one who has authority. And this is so important for us to consider, as we saw right back in week one of this series, because when we understand who Jesus is and his identity, we, we approach him rightly then. You see, if Jesus is, is just a good teacher, then he doesn't have power to act when things go out of control. If, he, if he's just a wielder of special abilities and powers, then he doesn't offer a foundation of truth to build our lives upon. But Jesus is God. He is the one who has authority in all of these arenas that we're exploring in this series and more. And so because of that, he can act when things go out of control or seem out of control from our perspective. He can provide a solid foundation to build our lives upon because he speaks truth. He is truth. His word is truth. And so in other words, if Jesus says who he is, Jesus is who he says he is, sorry, he carries the authority that we see on display. And what that means is we can trust him. So because Jesus has authority in all of these ways, and today thinking about over the natural world, we can trust him. So how does he have this authority? Well, he has it because he made it. He made creation. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because it means that we can trust. It means that we can trust See, Jesus' question in verse 40 is a question of faith and trust, isn't it? As he's calmed the storm and turns to his disciples, he said, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus recognizes their fear. Why are you so afraid? And of course, it's a very natural reaction to what's going on, isn't it? This is not a normal situation. They think that they are about to die. But Jesus' question still stands. Why are you so afraid? do you still have no faith? See, it seems as if Jesus is, is disappointed maybe by their, their lack of faith. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? After all that you've seen already, all you've heard already, do you still have no faith? And the connection Jesus is making is clear that, that if they had faith in him, then they wouldn't have been so consumed by fear. If they'd had faith in Jesus, they would have known him. They would have known that he has the ability to do something. They would have known that he is the one who has authority to do something. And so they wouldn't have needed to let their fear consume them. And so if the disciples had had faith, as Jesus questions, if they'd had faith in who he was and what he could do, then they wouldn't have been concerned by the fact that he was sleeping in the boat they would have known that things would turn out just as he wanted them to because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and his will will be done. And so therefore they could trust even in the midst of the storm because of who was with them in the boat. Now, This this does raise a question of, of faith and what faith is then. And what does it mean to have faith? And if I could summarize it in this way. Faith is not blindly hoping that things will work out okay. That, that's not faith. That's, that's hope. That's wishful thinking. That's, that's not faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is assuredly trusting that things will work out God's way. So faith isn't blindly hoping that things will work out okay faith is assuredly trusting that things will work out God's way. Whatever God's way is, we trust. Now, 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 it may be possible to, to hear those truths, even to, to know that they are true, but to think that they're too good to be true for me. that that is pie-in-the-sky stuff, Drew. That that's good in practice, but how do you live that out? Do you not know what I'm going through? And many of us have been in situations which which could be described like this storm in Mark chapter 4. It feels like things are completely out of control. We are drowning, and it feels like Jesus is asleep, inactive, doing nothing, not providing any help that we would want want him to. And so we're crying out to God, but it feels like nothing's happening. The waves keep coming, the wind keeps howling, and, and that's a hard place to be because when we perceive inactivity from God, And that's a very important clarification. When we perceive inactivity from God, it can lead us to very strange and dangerous questions. It can lead us a bit like what the disciples say in verse 38. When they see the storm and see Jesus asleep, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? The the, the storm that they're facing and, and the perceived inactivity of Jesus leads the disciples to question if he's even good. Don't you care that we drown? You see, when we perceive inactivity from God, we can often make very wrong and dangerous assumptions. When we perceive inactivity from God, we might assume that, he's, that there's inability there. When we perceive inactivity, does that mean inability? That God is not able to help? He's unable to help in this situation. When we perceive inactivity, does that mean that God is just passive? That, that he's unmoved by our plight and therefore will not help? When we perceive inactivity, it can sometimes lead us to think that that just means cruelty. That God is able to help. He hears our cries. He's just unwilling to help. And so we question the character of God. And all of these are lies. These are dangerous, dangerous lies. Because this is not our God. And without in any way wanting to minimize what any of us might be going through that leads us to feel like we are crying out to God, the storm is raging, and we perceive inactivity from him. Without, I'm not minimizing any of that. Scripture doesn't. But can I invite us to, to see things differently from this story? Yes, it might feel like Jesus is asleep in your boat. It might, you might perceive inactivity. But the promise of God's word is that Jesus is there. He, he's in the boat. And I realize that might sound trite and soundbitey, but it's true. He's in the boat. The one who has authority to calm it all is in the middle of it with you. And his presence may not seem that tangible just now. We may wish that he is much more active than he seems to be. But the sovereign God of the universe who holds our lives in his hands, the one who knows beginning from the end and has mapped out our days before him, He's in the boat. He's not caught off guard by this storm. He's not panicked by what's happening. He's not frantically trying to grab the sail to gain control. No, he's in the boat. And, and whether we have the, the. whether we are able to, to see or understand what he's doing, he is doing something. And faith in that moment means that we're able to trust that he will work out his ways, regardless of how that actually plays out in my life. Now, things work out well for the disciples here. The storm stops. They're amazed at Jesus. That's not promised for all of us. We're, We're not all promised the happy ending, sailing on the peaceful calm of the sea to the shore. Just because Jesus has authority to act doesn't mean that he always does in the way that we would hope or in the timing that we would hope. So our circumstances may continue to provide immense challenges for us physically and emotionally, mentally, medically, relationally. but, But the truth to ground ourselves on is that God is with us in the storm. And that matters Because it means that even though we perceive inactivity, we can still trust. Because he is still there. And as Carly said earlier, that means that he hasn't changed. Regardless of how our circumstances have. Regardless of how we perceive things to be. If we are resting in the truth of scripture, we know that our God doesn't change. We know that he promises to never leave us or forsake us. And so we trust. We remain faithful. We challenge the questions and the doubt with truth. And and I'm not saying that it will all work out rosy. But it will all work out the way God wants it to. And that is good. Regardless of what that means. And how we might perceive good. God's plans are still to prosper. He has not forgotten us. He's with us through the fire and the flood. Faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. And so Jesus' authority over the natural world can mean and does mean that there are times when he steps in miraculously to transform situations. And he is good in those times. His authority is still as strong even if he doesn't act in the way we long him to. And the call of The call of Christ to follow him is to follow him regardless. To trust because he is working something out. And the something that he's working out is his plan. And his plan is good. Even if we don't see the goodness until we're on the eternal shore, his plan is good. And so my plea with you is to keep trusting our good God. Jesus is the one who has authority over the natural world. And we see that played out for us in this scene in Mark 4. That's, we, it's clear. He speaks and it happens. How does he have that authority? Well, we see from all scripture, he has that authority because he created it. He had that authority because through him and for him, creation was made. And what does that mean? Well, because he has that authority, we are welcome to trust in every situation we find ourselves in. And I get it, that is much easier to say from here than it is to live out Monday to Saturday. But it is truth. It is God's truth. And so he is able to act, he has authority to act, and it can therefore be our joy and our privilege to surrender to his good arms, whatever the outcome may be. And so how are we we to respond to God's word today? Well, I think there's there's four responses that, that... that lead us in, or that lean into both of those two questions. How does he have that authority and what does it mean for us? How does he have that authority? Maybe the response is to recognize who Jesus is again. Maybe even that's for the first time. To recognize that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who came to ransom himself for, sinner, for sinners like you and me. And so therefore, because of who he is and a clearer picture of who he is, we submit ourselves more faithfully and fully to him. Or secondly, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we trust him more and more. And one way in which we can grow in our trust in him is to hear his words more clearly, to read his words more diligently. What I mean is spend time in his word. Come under his shelter in prayer. Get to know this God who holds your hands, holds you in his hands Trust him in the midst of your joys and sorrows and therefore live faithfully as you journey home with him. Recognize who he is and more fully who he is and submit therefore more fully to who he is. Trust him in the midst of your sorrows and joys and live faithfully as you journey home with him. This is not an easy thing to hear if you're in the midst of a storm but it is also the best thing you can hear if you're in the midst of a storm. There's not necessarily a happy ever after how we would like it to be. The Bible is not a fairy tale, but it is God's unending and unswavering, that's not a word, unwavering truth. And so we grind ourselves in it, and the ending that we're promised is not a fairy tale story. It is the reality of an eternity with our Heavenly Father, where there is no sorrow, there is no pain, there is no tears, there is endless praise. And so would you be buoyed? It's a phrase we've used a lot recently, isn't it? Would you be buoyed in the midst of the storm? See who's in your boat and know him to be the one who has ultimate authority and therefore can have your complete trust. Can we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, because your word is not uh, is not dead. It is not academic. It is true, and it is life-giving. And so we thank you, Father, that that in your word are accounts like these that took place on a real lake, on the Lake of Galilee, This really happened. Jesus really calmed the storm. And we know about it now so that we can marvel at him and the authority that he has. And so our trust in him can be deepened because we see him as the one who wields that authority. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to know this to be your truth. You would would help us to know it more than just a soundbite. More than just a catchy phrase, but you would help us, Father, to know and cling to this truth. Father, for those of us who are in the midst of storms, whatever that storm may be, and however many people in here, others in here may know about it or not, Father, I pray that you would show them your trustworthiness. You would show them your plans that are being worked out, even though, Father, so often we can't see it. Lord, for those of us who aren't in the place of a storm just at the minute, Help us, God, to take your word and bank it. Hold it tightly, knowing that in this life, storms will come. And when they come, when our boat starts to get buffeted by the winds and the waves, would we cling to you, Father? Knowing that you are the, our good God, you are working out your good plans. And, Lord, in your time and in your way, you will show us that. But in the, midst, in the meantime, Father... May you help us to choose to trust in your goodness and your grace and your ever-present help. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen.